It's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might not longer, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you for your Holy Spirit guiding, um, guiding us today. I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, to know you better. Um, we pray that you will speak through Ryan this morning and that your word will go forth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We are going through a series called For the City that is really about the values of this church. We basically said as a, as a leadership team and an elder team here at New City, we, we've kind of honed in our values a little bit more. And there are things like this, they're, they're continuums that, that kind of have a present value but also a future mission. And they are in the city for the city, humbled by grace, depending on the Spirit, planted and planted. And today we're looking at reconciled and reconciling. And as we, as we get into this, I want to share a little bit about my journey this week with you. Because I think right now we tend to think about reconciliation in a myopic way. We, when, when you hear the word reconciliation, you think only race right now. And the first thing I want to say is that's true, but that's not it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to look at the broader picture of reconciliation together as well this morning. Because every single person in this world has and is experiencing disruption and disharmony between God within themselves and with others. We just want to blame God sometimes to be angry at God and to give up, but God's Word teaches us the story of pursuit in the middle of disharmony. And not for a second has God forsaken or left us. Reconciled and reconciling means being made right with God and then thus being able to be made right with other people. That's what God's desire is to do through every single fiber of your being and every single sphere of your relationships to make them whole. The Bible calls this idea in the Older Testament, this idea of shalom, peace, harmony within ourselves and with God and others. That, that is the picture that we get of life in Revelation chapter 21. It's also the picture we get in the garden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that there was harmony between God, his people, and within ourselves. 
So where I want to go today, the big idea, if I could say it, would be this. Knowing Jesus, church, radically changes how we relate to God, others, and self. God, others, and self. So I want to tell you just a quick story about my week this week. I, I was reminded of God's pursuit of us and his desire to have a relationship with us so many times this week. I had a really busy week, lots of night meetings that were really good meetings, and lots of things going on, much like your week probably. And, and, and it was like everywhere I turned, God was showing me how he wanted a relationship with me and how he wanted me to help others have a relationship with him. We, so we had this service technician come to our house on Wednesday morning. I'd just gotten out of staff meeting, and, and I, had, I had forgotten to tell Megan that there was someone coming to the house, and it could be as early as 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody's laughing. You're like, yeah, my husband did that too. Yeah, so... And they gave us one of those windows that you love, right? It's like anywhere between 8 and 12. It's like, okay, why don't I just give you the whole day because there's no telling when. They said they were going to call. They didn't call. Anyway, they showed up at the house. This guy did at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm not home yet. Megan has to take the kids to school. It was, it was crazy. So, uh, so it, was, it, was, it was chaotic, and, and, and I come in, and then, then the guy is there, this, 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 this poor guy. You know, he's just doing his job. And like, I'm like, dude, when are you going to get out of my house so that I can go work and, and, and prepare this sermon to tell people about Jesus? And that's what I'm thinking on the inside. I'm like, I'm behind on my sermon prep. I've got to get in the study. And, and he's just wanting to talk to me. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to talk to you, man. And so he's looking up the books on our shelf in our living room, and he says, I know she like to read. He's like, you ever read The Shack before? And, 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 uh, and, and, and then I'm, you know, I'm thinking a lot of things in that moment. Um, but I, I didn't respond, and I'm glad I didn't respond because God did something with this. I said, what did you like? I said, I, I've, I know about the book. I've read some of it. I said, what did you like about it? And he said, he said, here's the deal, man. He's like, my mom had me read it, and I just didn't know that you could have a relationship with God. That's one of the things that it showed me. Is like, maybe I could have a relationship with God. That's literally what came out of his mouth. And so in, the, in that moment, you know, I began to pull out my Bible and correct all of his theology about the shack. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. In the moment, I realized that God is desperately trying to show us that he, we can have a relationship with him. And he uses lots of different mediums through his Holy Spirit. But he also uses his people. I was so busy being preoccupied about trying to tell other people about Jesus that I literally almost missed the fact that God said a man, not outside of my house, not in my neighborhood, not in my workplace, but in my living room asking about Jesus. And so we started talking and I, at that point I was like, oh, okay, God, I get it. I get it. You know, okay, this is the sermon prep. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, and we, you know, he's working on me. And so we had breakfast Friday and we're going to have breakfast again this Friday. And um, one of the conversations we had at breakfast was, man, how can I, how can I know that I can, I can, you know, be in heaven? Like, how, how can that happen? And, and so it's just God just doing things. And so I was just reminded in that moment that God wants to use us and that, and that life is the laboratory for how God wants to use you. Like when you think you're the busiest and you have the least amount of time is probably when God desires to use you the most reconciled and reconciling. So as we work our way through 2 Corinthians 5, there's a lot of things I could say about this passage. I'm not going to be able to say everything uh, that I could, but I do want to say some things. The first point I want to make as we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 here is this, is that sin has fractured every relationship that you have. 
Sin has fractured every single relationship that you have. Your relationship with yourself is why we have low self-esteem, inaccurate views of ourselves, or on the other side, we're puffed up in pride. Sin has fractured your relationship with God. It's why you can't believe that God could actually love you without you doing anything to earn it. Sin has fractured your relationship with other people. It's why you want to run from people when it gets hard. It's why you see yourself and you don't consider others. Sins fracture that as well. So there's this lie uh, of, of independency that I want to look at first, but let's, let's just refresh our memories in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 and 15 here. Here's what, the, here's what the scriptures say. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's the key thing I want to hone in on here. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a pendulum that shifts. There's a, there's a transition. There's an exchange that happens in this heart of reconciliation where we no longer live for ourselves, but we have a desire to live for someone else, namely Jesus and uh, in his glory. And so, and so what's it mean that, that Jesus died so that we might not long longer might not no longer live for ourselves you see we were in such great harmony with God like we talked about and this disruption came uh, and 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 we were made to live in such a deep harmony with God and a community that we might see the beauty of God and worship him but now one of the effects of this fallen condition that we have is we only think that we matter we, we fail to see that our expression and our worship of God was meant to be one of many parts. Paul would say this in, um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, one body, many parts. Every single one of us reflect and image Jesus, whether we are walking redemptively with him or not. And therefore, it all matters. It all plays into how we reflect and worship God. So we, we can only truly be in unity as an image-bearing community through Jesus. So let me explain this. I, I want to just hone in on this idea of Jesus giving us the power to turn from self to God in the way that we think about ourselves. If you've got a Bible, flip back to the first book, Genesis. Now we'll look at Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And... Um, this was a time in human history, it's, 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 we're looking at the, the, the portion that is about the Tower of Babel. This is a time in human history where humanity had fallen in Genesis 3. God had, God had you know, put a curse on humanity because of their sin. He didn't do everything that he could do, but there was definitely some consequences for the sin. Humanity got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and finally he just wiped everyone except Noah and his family off the face of the earth because that's what they deserved. Then... This promise is reiterated through Noah uh, and his family. And Noah's not perfect, for sure. He's, got, he's messed up as well. But, but God kind of gives him the same promise, the same implications of the promise to be fruitful and multiply. Go and do that. And what we see in Genesis 11, he tells them to spread out, be fruitful and multiply. What they do is they stay in one place and they disobey God. Now, now, here's the deal. Here's the thing about Genesis 11 is, is I think a lot of people would look at Genesis 11 and say, wow, man, everybody was on the same page. There wasn't these, you know, unjust killings of 
you know, police officers and, and black men. There, there wasn't this discrimination uh, toward Hispanics. There, there wasn't this shame-based guilt culture that Asians experienced. There, there wasn't any of that that was there. They were all on the same page. But here's the deal. They were all on the same page rebelling against God. So we, we can get the... What, what I want to lean into here is we can get the appearance of reconciliation without the power of it. If reconciliation doesn't change our heart, it's not reconciliation. Look at Genesis 11 with me real quick. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and uh, butamen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Notice the focus on ourselves. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is the only, the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what we're told here is that humans didn't really want to fill the earth and obey God. They didn't really, really want to spread out and, 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 and let the glory of God cover the earth. And so they stayed in one place so that they could worship themselves there, basically. And they wanted to settle in one place and seek their own desire, not God's. Now, Genesis 11.1 1 records the fact that, that there was one language and one culture among the descendants of Noah. Let us make a name for ourselves. And if you ever wonder why you keep sinning when you don't want to, you know that Roman, Roman 7 passage that you, like, you can't read it because it's like, you know, did the things you didn't want to do, didn't do the things you want. It's really, it's a tongue twister, but like you can't read it real well, but all of a sudden it's like just sits in your heart and you're like, yeah, I get that. If you ever wonder why you do those things that you don't want to do, it's because this, this vow, let us make a name for ourselves, kind of lives deeply embedded within each of us as fallen image bearers of God. We all want to make a name for ourselves, and we're trying to do it as fast as we can. That's how we're born. So what happens in Babel, I mean, if I was living at that time and you were living then, we would be doing the same thing. We'd be making a name for ourselves. So so th this thought lives in us, and it's, it really can boil itself down to this idea of pride, right? I'm the best. It, it's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, um, having a focus on yourself. Now, now God directly uh, intervenes to do something better than we can dream up. Uh, and if you notice, um, every time that, that God does something amazing, it is because of a, a direct intervention of him coming and actually doing something uh, in our midst, pursuing us, showing up whenever we are running. Now, consider this, the diversity of the world that we now see in this state, in this city, in this county, in this room, is a result of Babel. 
Some of you, I was talking to somebody this week, some of you, your English is your third language. Think about that. And here we are in the same room together worshiping the same God. Now, God didn't give us over to ourselves at Babel whenever we were seeking ourselves, but in his patience, he confused our language that we might look outside of ourselves for redemption. In Genesis 11, Babel looked like a community that was on the same page. Everyone working for the same cause. Everyone, you know, I'm making bricks, yeah, I'm, I'm mixing the mortar, I'm doing this and that, and yet they were running from God. We can be doing the same thing. We can have the appearance of reconciliation without the essence of it because of the fractured nature of our sin. So my question to you is this. Do we want the appearance or do we want the essence? We want the essence. We want the heart of it. So our awareness of this fractured nature of our relationships, you know, it's, it's where you feel like people just don't completely get you. You feel misunderstood by others. You feel distant from God, even though you're doing everything you know to do to stay in close relationship with him. You have a view of yourself that is not God's view of yourself. And it seems to play a lot louder than the other tape in your mind, right? It's the one that is the predominant narrative that you find yourself living in. I'm not worthy. No one really loves me. Everyone's abandoned me. But that narrative that plays out in every single one of us in our lives, that's the one that's louder. But friends, what I want to remind you of is this. It's a hidden grace. It's a hidden grace whenever we realize that things aren't the way that they should be. Now, not only individually, but also corporately. Now, you think about, you think about even the, the awareness that we now have of so many racial things that, that many folks didn't have in the past. And we, it seems like things are getting worse. I think it's a hidden grace that shows us the work that God has come to do through his church. Just because we see the fractured nature of sin doesn't mean that things are getting worse. It just means we know how God wants to work, how he wants to move among us as reconcilers. Now, when, when Jesus goes to the Father in the end, end of the Gospels and he, and he sends the Spirit, what's the first thing that, that the Holy Spirit does when he, sends, when he sends him in Acts chapter 2? Let me remind you. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Now there was... They were in the upper room together, these disciples, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come so that they could be empowered to do God's ministry, to build the kingdom. Scripture say this, Acts 2.5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under earth. And why were they dwelling, why were they there from every nation? Because of Babel. Because of that thing that they really messed up and then God intervened graciously and dispersed them and gave them different languages. Now they were all back in Jerusalem together. And this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They all from Kentucky. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Why? Because I think the Holy Spirit had Babel in mind when he fell upon those 120 believers in that upper room in Jerusalem. I think it was a way to remind them of the work that Jesus has come to do through his church. To put back together what's been fractured. And it doesn't just happen at the end of time. It happens fully then, but it happens today. Jesus says what? 
My kingdom is in your midst. Whenever the Pharisees ask him, hey, when's the kingdom coming? You know, or, or the disciples ask him, well, is it, when is it coming? And he says, uh, you, you know, it's actually in your midst now. It's here. Because I'm here. And my presence is with you. So, think about this. Every fracture you feel in your own pursuit of God, every disruption, every disharmony, every frustration that you have, within yourself, with others, and corporately as people, is a hidden grace. It's a neon sign reminding us to look outside of ourselves for wholeness. That's the first thing we've got to recognize about this idea of being reconciled to God is that we are all in the same boat even though our brokenness looks different. We all have to look outside of ourselves for that. So every person that you think about that, that God might use you to reach, those guys, those AT&T guys that come in your house at 8 o'clock on Wednesday morning, no matter where they're coming from, the answer is still the same on how to be made whole. Second thing I want to talk to you about is this, that fractured nature of sin, but also Jesus has come to, number two, Jesus has come to recreate what could not be repaired. Jesus has come to recreate what could not be repaired. Let's look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to go 16 and 17 and also look at verse 21 here. What, what the Scripture tells us is that we actually need a far deeper work than we think we need. It's like when you go into the shop and you're like, hey, I need an oil change. And they're like, no, you need a new engine, dude. You know what I'm talking about? I was talking to somebody this week and they're like, yeah, that's what happened. It's one of the oil change, man. I got a new engine. So th this, is what, this is what Jesus uh, is saying through the Scriptures as Paul writes this, is, is, is that we need a far deeper work for this to be possible than we know. We don't just need a bolt-on fix, something we can pick up at the hardware store. Uh, we need a new heart. And he's pleased to do that. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, then to 21. From now on, therefore, we as a people, as the church, regard no one according to the flesh, what they look like, where they come from, where they've been. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away behold the new has come verse 21 he goes on to say for our sake he tells us how this is possible he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God theologically this is a scripture that tells us about substitutionary atonement so, so what, is, what, is, what, is, what is atonement? Atonement is the solution for our fractured hearts. How, do, how are we made one with God again? Who has to do the work? Who does the, the hard work of earning back what we lost when we sinned? How do we get the harmony? How do we get the shalom? How do we get the peace back in the home, in the community, among people groups? How are we ever going to see that again? Outside of ourselves. This is what he says. Substitutionary atonement is the process where Jesus enters into a covenant with human nature forever. By becoming flesh, and he lives righteously, dies criminally, and resurrects gloriously in our place. That's what he does. That's how we can say I'm new. It's not because, you know, I got a new pair of shoes and I'm looking good and I'm good to go now. No, it's because God has done an absolutely new work inside of us and for us. And by faith, he recreates what was lost inside of us. 
That's what he does. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, the object of God's wrath against sin. Even though he knew no sin, he didn't do it. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God, the rightness of God, the way to live right in God's presence. And kind of another theological term here that I think it's just worth sharing with you, just to show you the full scope of redemption of what God wants to do, is, is this word imputation, which, 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 which really means it's a, uh, well, just let me explain it, triple imputation. Let, let's look at this. So what happens is Adam sins in, uh, in Genesis 3, and we say, I didn't commit that sin. It's not my fault. Why do I have to pay for what Adam did? That's what we think about, right? And not only when we look back at the garden, but we do the same thing when we think about corporate sin together. Because we're so individualistic, we say, you know, I'm not racist. I didn't do that to those folks. I'm not guilty of that. And, and, and we do that, our kids do that as well in our home, and we see that happening. So Adam's sin is imputed to us, and then, you know, we read in the scriptures that, that no one is righteous, not even one. That, that, that the human heart is uh, deceitfully wicked beyond all understanding. You know, we read things like that and it really hurts because you're like, man, I didn't think I was that bad. But it doesn't, what Jesus does doesn't stop there because then on the cross, my sin that I've committed is imputed, is given, is placed on Jesus. Now, Jesus could say the same thing that we say whenever we inherit Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin. He could say the exact same thing. I didn't do it. I'm getting out of here. Peace out. No, he didn't do that. He stayed. And the reason is, is there's no way that we can be reconciled to God without Jesus living perfectly, dying criminally, and raising gloriously. There's no other way for us to be reconciled to God, and there's no other way for us to be reconciled to others and ourself as well. Jesus' righteousness is given to us. This, this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything God had planned for us from the beginning, we become in Jesus. We are reconciled to God. It's not with an asterisk, oh, but have you seen the sin that he committed before he became a Christian? It's, not, it's none of that. It's your sin is cast as far away as the east is from the west, as the psalmist would say. The sin that we can't forget, he can't remember because Jesus stands in our place. We are reconciled. And Jesus has come to do a far deeper work than what we ask for. Because he says, I want to make you new. And you say, I just want to get by. It's the same thing Jesus did when people ask him to heal him. I've been reading the Gospel of Mark with my discipleship group. And, you know, Mark 2, the friends say, hey, you know, can you heal him? And, and he looks at the guy and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. He's like, well, I didn't even ask for my sins. But that's cool. I mean, if you want to do that. Because the deeper issue is not what you can see. In reconciliation, in, in conflict and disruption between each other and within ourselves, it's deeper than what the manifestations of sight reveal to us. It's a turmoil within each of us that is troubled because we are disconnected from God. And Jesus says, I'm the way to wholeness. But you've got to receive me by faith. 
uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say um, something al along these lines in, uh, in his book, Life Together. Um, he talks about this idea of how when we, when we think about relating to others, we have to relate to others through the blood. If we just try to relate to one another through the flesh, like what, like what Paul writes here, we don't, we, we don't regard one another according to the flesh anymore is what he's saying. So, so basically, because I'm a new creation, I don't regard you as the old creation anymore. I see the potential inside of you because Jesus saw the potential inside of me. I don't regard you the same way that I used to regard you because I'm a new creation. This new wine and new wineskins thing. We're not putting this new wine and old wineskins. No, this is a new creation. I am a new person. I might have some of the same old tendencies, but I'm a new person. Well, he says this in this book. He says, if, when he talks about life as the church together, he says, if you want to speak to someone else, it has to go through the blood of Jesus first. Now, now let me just give you a for instance. So if my conversation with you about something that's happened, maybe some type of disruption, maybe some type of disharmony, maybe even small talk. You know, if something goes through the blood of Jesus before it gets to you in my conversation, the chances are it's going to be a different conversation that we're having. Amen? When you, this is why James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Because when you're, when you're slower to speak, you, you let your conversation and your thoughts go through the blood. And when it goes through the blood, it's purified, isn't it? It might still be tainted with sin, but it's not as bad as it could be. It's not as harming. It's not as lethal as it could be with that conversation. So what would it look like for you to let your conversations, your thoughts, your relationship, even with yourself, how you view yourself, what you think about when you look in that mirror? What would it look like to let that go through the blood? What would it look like to let your relationship with that coworker that sits next to you in the cubicle that you can't stand, what would it look like for your thoughts to go through the blood before you engage? What would it look like for your kid who's really given you a hard go at it lately, for your thoughts and your position and your posture toward them to go through the blood? This is what Jesus came to do. He came to reconcile us so that we live differently because we're different from the inside out. Now, when we've got this, this new heart, he says, okay, I've got work for you to do, thirdly. So we've talked about how sin has fractured every relationship. We've, we've talked about how Jesus has come to recreate what could not be repaired. We were, too, we were too fatal. We were too far gone. He had to give us a new heart, more than we asked for. Lastly, I just want to look at this. This ministry of reconciliation, this call that we have. And I want to say it like this, the ministry of reconciliation is the full-time occupation of every Christian. It's your full-time job. Your paycheck, you know, may say NCR on it. It may say Walmart on it. It might say Gwinnett County Public Schools. But your full-time occupation is to be a reconciler of the world. This is what he's made us to be. And he sends us out into different places to do that. And he gives us the power to do it. So let's be reminded of the scriptures here. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Scriptures say this, all this is from God, this, this power of reconciliation, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, but he didn't stop there. He gave us a gift, gave. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he goes on to say what that is. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not 
counting their trespasses against them. That's what Jesus did for us. He didn't count our trespasses against us. We wrote a check that was a cold check. It bounced, and he hooked the check up to his account. That's what he's saying. And he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. He gave us the gift, the power to be reconciled to God and to others, and he gave us the message, the good news, that the way you're living isn't the way you have to be living. And then he goes on to say this, Therefore, because of all this, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God, in his kindness, reconciles us to himself through Christ. He makes us, think about this, living letters to the world of the way to be made whole and right with God. He says, I, I, could, I could have sent you a letter down on how, on how to do this, but I, myself, made a covenant with human nature and came down in the form of man and will forever, Jesus will forever be in the flesh as well. It's not like he just put on the suit and then went back. And No, he is interceding for us forever. He is like us forever, church. That means we're always going to be righteous when we're in Christ. That's never going to change. He's going to make us whole even though we're struggling now. But in that struggle, there's all these hidden graces on the way to be reconciled to God. And there's a world that's watching us and how we're wrestling through how to be made right with God. And they're just peeking in, wondering if they can get in on the action as well. Just saying, we just open our eyes, we'll see it. And because this, this heart inside of us is not our old self-centered heart, we approach life differently. This, this passage tells us that the way God contends with people who are estranged with Him is through our lives. He makes His appeal through us. I want you to think about like a, legal, like a courtroom, right? You're, you're making an appeal, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to make your point in this case. And, and God, is, God is saying that the way that God makes his case to a lost world is through you. Like he could have sent down, you know, Jesus, the best lawyer in the world, really, you know. One with the purest motives, the best understanding of the law. Could have sent him down, but he said, you know what, I'm going to change these people. And the way that they've been changed is going to be the appeal. It's going to be the argument of why God loves you. It's going to be the argument of how to be made whole. He's making his appeal through us. The question is, will we let him do that? Or are we too busy making our own appeals? He created us new to make his appeal, his argument through our lives. What do people read from your life? What is the appeal that they receive through our lives? What is the message of reconciliation, the gospel, that they receive through how we live our lives among them? Now, I'm not saying you're going to knock it out of the park, but are you even aware that God intends to save people through you? All those lost and dirty people out there that, that, that really need Jesus, you're the one for them. You're the way God wants to save them through your life, through your message. Any place that sin has extended its reach is our problem. That's what that means. You see sin, you think, ah, oh, you know, that's just too bad for those people over there. That is the call to engage. Within your sphere of influence, any place sin reaches is your problem. It's your place to engage. Now, you're not going to do that perfectly, and you're not going to do it 
willingly all the time, but God wants to make His appeal even in those places with you and through you. Because your primary identity is a reconciled child of God sent to reconcile the world to God through your life. That's what Jesus has come to do. Now, let me just encourage you. I see this already happening in this church. I see it already happening by how you love your neighbors. When I walk into your your, your, your house that you just purchased in Lawrenceville, and I see a map of your neighborhood on the fridge. I see you trying. I see you learning names. I see you wanting to know your neighbors by how you care for the most vulnerable in this city, spending your time and your, and your money and, and staying, your pre- the gift of your presence, by how you don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's one of the things Paul encourages the church in Ephesus to do. He says, listen, Don't give the enemy a foothold in your life. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Approach and pursue whoever it is you've got conflict with. Because in that, there are hidden graces that God wants to show you. But how you struggle through your own sin and walk with your kids as they struggle too. You don't hide it from them. You don't just show them the highlight reel of, of who you are. But you let them in on your struggle too. But how you weep with those who weep, corporately and individually how you think about folks that live differently than you and the struggles that they must have, by how you enter in, by how you're willing to grow in how you think about race, poverty, and gender. The things that divide us. You're willing to grow. I see it so much in the Bible and so much in you. And church, we just want to spell this out and say we're not giving up on this. We think this is the hope of the world. So we want to put in our values. So how do we grow as reconcilers? You know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech, I think it was in 1967, at a Christian leadership convention here in Atlanta, and it was, it was on this topic, where do we go from here? It's in the thrust of the civil rights movement. One of the things he said in there was that he wanted a divine dissatisfaction in the way things are kind of a holy discontentment to see that the problems that you encounter and the conflicts that you see become your problem because you are the one that God wants to make his appeal through. So where do we go from here? I just have a few things. This is not exhaustive. I want to share three things with you quickly. The first thing is this. We have a humbled heart. That's where we go from here. So we need to really believe that we're never finished. That, that we always have a blind spot in the situations that we're in. As, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I see dimly. We need to really believe that about the places that we find ourselves in, that we don't have the full picture, and we might not ever have it until Jesus returns. About any situation that you're in, and when you do that, it shows you that there might be more to the narrative that you're in. Whether it's conflict that you're in, whether it's something you see on the news, whether it is something that you see in the community or the local school that you're in, whatever it is, you don't see the full picture because you see dimly because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now, you know, the way that I identify this in my life is, uh, is, is, is oftentimes whenever I see an issue come up and I jump to these quick solutions. Oh, if they would just do this, then everything will be fine. If they would just get a job, their life would be better. If they would just stop drinking, everything would be fine in their family. If they would just stop wearing hooded sweatshirts at night, things wouldn't happen like that. 
If they would just wait until all the facts come out, then we wouldn't have these issues. Is anybody offended? Good. There's more than what we can see. And the, the more that we, we say, I don't really have all this together. I don't have all of the information. There's more that's going on here. The more that we enter in with that humbled heart, the more God is going to use us to make his appeal through us in this community. And the scripture that, that reminds me of this is Matthew chapter 7. Church, when you realize that God had to die for you, for you to be made new, it changes the way that you think about other people. Listen to this, Matthew 7, uh, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You could, you could put this on repeat on the background of your phone, in your cubicle at work, on your dashboard as you drive down 85, what, wherever it is that, that you feel the most disruption, put that there. Why do, I see the, why, do, why do I see the speck and I want to point that out, but I don't see the log in my own eye? Jesus is saying something profound. There's always a log. There's always a log. There's always a spot that you don't see. So if you're a really good inspector of specks, you've probably got multiple logs in your eye. And we have to remind ourselves of this because this is the, the robber of reconciliation. Whenever we don't see the plank that's in our own eyes. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. There was this newspaper that, that, uh, that, uh, that was asking uh, kind of this questionnaire and they asked G.K. To, to write into it. And the question was this, what's wrong with the world? It was like one of those political rant things. Oh yeah, what's wrong with the world? Oh, I'll tell them what's wrong with the world. Ready to write a bunch of stuff down. And G.K. Chesterton writes in this in just one little sentence. He says, Dear sirs, regarding your inquiry of what's wrong in the world, and then he puts a colon, he says, I am, period, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I love it, right? It's true. I'm what's wrong with the world. You're what's wrong with the world. But Jesus is the one that comes to make his appeal of how to be right through us, through wrong people, that he's made right. Secondly, so the first thing is his humble hearts. Secondly, open eyes. So the Bible calls us to stay in one another's life and to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn in Romans. That's what he says. Now, uh, we have lots of opportunities to do that, and rarely do we take those opportunities to really sit in the middle of the brokenness with people. We just think, hey, man, it could be, a little, could be worse for me. I'm glad I'm not in there. Whenever you see brokenness, it's your problem because we're part of the same family. Whenever you see injustice, it's your problem. I'm not telling you how to go about it. I'm just saying it's your problem. Whether you want to believe that or not. So, so this, this means that the world's problems... Are my problems. My, my friend Sam uh, Kang, who's planning a church, uh, he, he's kind of coined this term 360 degree reconciliation. That's what he's calling his church to do. That means every area that I see it, it's my, it's my issue. Every issue that I rub up against. It's not, it's not your job to fix it. That's what intimidates us so much. But it's your job to let God make his appeal through your life. That's, that's, the, that's what keeps us out of so many relationships. We think, man, they're just... They're going to be needy. They're going to nag me. I don't really know about this. Or what will my other friends think of me if I, if I spend time with these people? 360 degree reconciliation because the kingdom of God is in our midst. This week I was at a church planning network meeting and a Mexican-American friend of mine helps lead the network. Um, and, uh, and we were praying through Revelation 21, kind of the, the, the past, present, future redemption. It's kind of what, it talks about the new Jerusalem. And, and one of the things he asked us to pray about at the end was he said, 
He said, I want you to pray about the longings of your heart for the people that you serve. The people that you're called to be reconcilers with. I want you to pray about the future implications of that for them. And here's what he, here's what he prayed uh, as we were praying. He said, I long for the day that we don't all have to have papers and documentation. And I got to tell you, I just, I was so convicted and humbled to be in this brother's midst. Because there's so much of his life that I don't even understand. This is why we re- weep with refugees and and immigrants over their legal status and their documentation. And just as an aside, if we're honest, most of us couldn't pass that citizenship test either. It is, is, it is difficult. Now, if you're a guy that looks like me, I know what, you, what you're tempted to think is that, you know, are, you, when you hear a situation like this, you're thinking, are those people in this church legal or not? Do they have their document? They went through the... Here's the, here's the thing. It, it matters in some degree, but in, in the big, grand, sweeping scheme of the narrative of Scripture, it doesn't matter because Jesus calls us to welcome all. He's always been about that. In the Old Testament, the Scriptures talk about welcoming the sojourner and the alien into the community of Israel. We have a responsibility to weep and to mourn and to be in the midst of people who struggle differently than us and to understand because that's how God makes His appeal through us. Lastly, keep your eyes open. Whatever it is around you, keep your eyes open. 360-degree reconciliation. The last thing I want to tell you is we've got to zoom out to be able to zoom in. We've got to zoom out to be able to zoom in. Let me explain that. Reconciliation is about zooming out to see the big picture and zooming in to see the places God calls us. We have to see the collective impact of sin and need for reconciliation, among others, to effectively see the individual. That's why we zoom out to look at the whole narrative of Scripture. We look at Genesis to Revelation to understand the work that God is doing. We have to do that the same way with the people that God calls us to be reconcilers with. We've got to zoom out. Now here's the thing. Um, th- this will mean that we look differently at things like race and cultural brokenness that we don't understand fully. As Americans, here's the deal. We are typically more concerned about tomorrow than we are yesterday, right? I mean, there are a handful of people that care about history, like Eli Stansel. We'll shout out there. You guys always tell me about history. But most people do not. This is why we don't read the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, you're part of this whole story. I don't know if you know that or not. Part of reconciliation is about seeing how what happened yesterday affects today and tomorrow. And that takes work for Christians to do. Because what you see is not all that there is. Because we are complex, image-bearing people who have been designed by an almighty God who's creative. We have to grow in our understanding of the fractured nature of sin in this way. And we, we, we as, a, as a culture, are particularly embedded in this individualistic kind of, you know, narrative where, where we just think about tomorrow. And, uh, and that really impedes the progress of reconciliation and God using us, I think. So, uh, so when, when we do this, um, you know, we think about salvation as individualistic. So we, we, we predominantly think about it as Americans. Our culture has conditioned us to think this way. That salvation is a transaction between two individuals themselves and God. That's the way we've been taught to think about salvation. Now, there is a lot of element that's true there, but that is nowhere close to the whole narrative. 
It's about, it's always been, what was it about with Abraham? It was about a people. Are they individuals? Yes, but they're a people that God was reconciling to himself, birthing a family out of this man and his wife from the promise of God. And so when we think about our job as reconcilers, we need to think about it more like a community rescue project. Than this, you know, this these individuals going out and, and trying to do things. A community rescue. What would be the potential if we looked at that as a community, what God has called us to do? Nowhere in the history of the earth do we have a better opportunity to see the curse of Babel reversed this side of heaven than in Gwinnett County right now. Nowhere. Think about it like this. There was this. You remember those boys that uh, that were trapped in that cave in Thailand, and, and the world just kind of stopped as we waited what was happening. There's a story of this, this, uh, this, this diver, this, this Thai diver named uh, Saman uh, Gunan, who was a Thai Navy diver. And he, he, part of the story that went missing is that this guy, it was, it was like round trip, it was an 11-hour dive trip to go get these boys. And, and he was delivering oxygen to bring the boys back. And whenever he was on his way back, he ran out of oxygen and he died. And not many people knew about that part of the story. But it was a part of this collective, redemptive process of getting those boys out of that cave. Now, everyone wasn't asking, you know, you know everyone on the, on, the, on the team that was rescuing these boys, they weren't like, hey, how did those boys get in there? What was that coach thinking? No, they were so entrenched in the mission that those questions didn't even matter. What mattered is getting the boys out of there. That's what Jesus has come to do, church. He came on a, on a rescue mission. He ran out of oxygen, all right? On the cross, he ran out of oxygen. But in the process, he saved us all that would believe in him. And he saved us so that God might make his appeal through our lives. New City, we've got so much hope. We've got so much ground to run on here in Lawrenceville. Because knowing Jesus radically changes me and you and everyone because we relate to God differently because we're new people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, um, for our time in the Word today, and, and we ask you uh, to continue making all things new uh, through our lives um, because you've made us new. So, Lord, would it be so that our primary occupation would be those that are reconciled seeking to be reconcilers? Would you grow us? Would you grow our hearts? Would you help us to see people for what they are? Image bearers of you. Complex individuals with complex fractures and the ability to be saved in all of their complexities and restored to new life. Would you do that among us? Would you grow us in that? In Jesus' name, amen.